I invite you to turn with me now to the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We just recently began a new sermon series here at West Hills in the book of Genesis, and this morning we are in arguably the most important section, not only in Genesis, but in the entire Bible. Here, uh, beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and then running through the end of chapter 3. And that's why I decided to stay in our uh, Genesis series for Easter this morning. This might be the first Easter sermon that any of us have ever heard from the Old Testament, but for some who will be joining us this morning, it might be your first sermon period that you've heard in a long while, maybe ever. Maybe uh, you've had bad experience at other churches in the past, uh, but this online medium feels safer. Maybe you're honestly just struggling right now to make sense of everything going on in the world, and you've come here this morning looking for answers, and we are so glad you did. You are in the right place, uh, not necessarily West Hills, but God's Word. That's the place to run. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 does a better job of introducing us to a biblical worldview than perhaps any other passage in all of Scripture. Now, what is a worldview? Well, it's just what it sounds like. It's the way that you view the world. For example, the various world religions are all worldviews. But every worldview is trying to answer the same six basic questions, the six most important foundational questions that we all must answer in this life. Number one, who is God? Number two, why am I here? Number three, how should I live? Number four, what's wrong with the world? Number five, how does it get fixed? Finally, number, seven, uh, number six, what happens when I die? Now, how you answer those six questions will determine your worldview. For example, a Buddhist worldview would answer, number one, there is no God. It's a non-theistic religion. And number two, the purpose of life is to escape existence. And so, number three, you should live morally and meditatively according to the noble eightfold path because, number four, the problem with this world is its impermanence. And so number five, you alone can overcome it by achieving total personal enlightenment, nirvana. But number six, if you fail to, then you get reincarnated to start all over again. A secular humanist worldview proposes, number one, there is also no God, and that means, number two, that you get to determine your life's purpose. Number three, so long as you don't infringe on anyone else's rights, you are free to live however you want. But keep in mind, number four, there is real suffering in the world. And number five, the solution for the world's problems is us. It's humanity. Given enough evolution as a species, enough education, we can overcome diseases, racism, global warming, anything we put our minds to. And yet, number six, ultimately, we have no soul, and when we die, we are simply gone. This life is all there is, and so you better enjoy it while it lasts. And if we had more time, we could go through the rest. Hinduism, and Islam, Confucianism, agnosticism, the list is very long. But this morning, I want to show you the Bible's answers to all six of those questions, and they're all found right here 
in the first three chapters of Genesis. But before I do, let me, let me just quickly give you one more worldview. In 2005, the year 2005, sociologist Christian Smith coined the term moralistic therapeutic deism to describe what he found in his research and surveying thousands of people all over the country to be the dominant religion in America today. Smith discovered that most Americans still call themselves Christians because they simply don't have language for it, but this worldview is so different from biblical Christianity that Smith coined this new term, moralistic therapeutic deism, and here are its six basic tenets. Number one, God created the world, but he passively watches over it. Number two, we are here because we make God so happy. And specifically, number three, it makes God happy when we are happy. And so we should be nice to others so as not to prevent them from being happy, but at the same time, we should pursue our own personal happiness as well. And number four, problems exist because most people aren't happy, and so they take it out on others. And moreover, because God is so passive, God doesn't get very involved in our world to help us out. I mean, if he did, if God truly cared, we wouldn't have things like coronaviruses, right? And so number five, the solution is to simply try your best to be a good person. And if you do, number six, if you're good enough, God lets most people into heaven when they die. Now, that's what the majority of Americans today believe. Maybe the majority of you watching this, this video sermon right now and it's what most people believe that the Bible teaches. So is it? Is that a biblical worldview? Let's take each of those questions one at a time and work our way back through. The Bible's answers, Genesis 1 through 3. Number one, who is God? We begin at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. We hear, in the beginning, God. And in those four words alone, we discover the most crucial truth about who God is. God is preeminent. He is primary, supreme, surpassing, superior. Right off the bat, the Bible confronts us with the uncomfortable reality that we exist within God's story, His world that He created for His glory and His own purposes, that we are not, in fact, the center of the universe, all of it, according to Colossians 1 verse 16, exists from God and for God. God is both the author and the aim of all of creation and human history. So in just four words, the Bible has put God in his place and us in ours. God is preeminent creator. We are subordinate creatures. Now if we read on the rest of chapter 1, outlines 19 additional attributes of God's character that we have studied at West Hills these past two weeks now. God is creator, powerful, dynamic, involved, communicative, good, orderly, purposeful, life-giver, caring, creative, trinitarian, relational, empowering, manifold, hierarchical, provider, thorough, and the standard to which you and I are held and by which we all one day must be judged. That's who God is. And that's all in Genesis chapter 1. And because that's who God is, we get our answer to question number two. Why am I here? The short answer is, God created you and me to reflect his glory. So we skip ahead now to verse 26 of chapter 1. We hear then God said, 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his image and God blessed them. Now, there's been a lot of discussion through the ages about exactly what is meant by humans being uniquely made. No other animal in God's created order is made in the image of God, the Imago Dei. Is it our consciousness that we are uniquely self-aware creatures or our conscience that we are predisposed towards morality or perhaps our unique capacity for relationship with God or maybe it's our spirits that humans alone have this eternal part of us that lives on after our deaths. I think it's probably all those things but most literally to be made in the image of God, the Hebrew concept here, is to be made a reflection of God. The picture that we get here is God looking in a mirror and seeing his own image or reflection, looking back at him. That's why he created us. Psalm 19 says that all of creation declares the glory of God, but we humans alone are a direct reflection of his glory. As a father, myself, I can see my own reflection in my daughter. I look at her and I see half of me. I see me in her eyes, in her smile, in her curiosity, in her sense of humor, and in her stubbornness and her short-temperedness. And in the same way, God created us so that when he looks at us, he might see glorious reflections of his perfection. We have the highest calling in the universe, friends. Isaiah 43, 7, God says, Everyone who is called by my name, I created for my glory, I formed and I made. Are you starting to see the good news of Christianity unfold? There is a God, and he is awesome. He is worthy of all glory. Moreover, he created you in his own very good image. You are the culmination of all of God's creation, uniquely designed to bring him the glory that he so deserves. What an honor we have as image bearers of God, but... It gets even better because number three, how should we live? The Bible's answer is clear. We ought to live according to God's life-giving commands. God gives us just three commands in Genesis chapters one and two, and they're all connected by this one theme. God is all about life, human flourishing. Here's his commands. Number one, produce life. Chapter one, verse 28. He commands them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants to fill the whole earth with more image bearers of his glory. And so he commands us to go make babies. Reflect my image as creator and make life yourselves. Number two, promote life. Verse 28 again, he says, subdue the earth. Or in verse 26, he puts it this way, have dominion over it. That doesn't mean exploiting it for our own selfish purposes. It, it means caring for the earth, reflecting God's great love and care for his good creation. And in chapter 2, verse 15, he puts it this way, God took the man and, and, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We are called to cultivate, to nurture life. And finally, number three, God commanded the man, saying, 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The third and final command is to preserve life. Trust me to be your God, Yahweh says. You don't even need to know good from evil. We were designed for a childlike dependence and faith. Simply trust in me, God says, and you will preserve your life. So God commands us not to eat something that's going to kill us. See, a lot of people have this flawed perception of God. I might call it bad PR. The church today, unfortunately, has become known more for what we're against than what we stand for. And so people have this image of God as like the fun police, like God is sitting up in heaven somewhere with his badge and his billy club, handing out tickets all day long. But friends, Jesus calls God a God of life. In fact, Jesus didn't get along so well with the religious people of his day, the first century fun police, the Pharisees. He called them hypocrites and whitewashed tombs, and they called him a glutton and a drunkard because apparently Jesus knew how to have a good time. And Jesus knew that life was made for living. Jesus himself says in John 10, 10, he said, I came to bring them life, life abundantly to the fullest. That's the very reason Jesus said he came. And that's what God wants for us. God really does want us to be happy. The difference is he, he just claims that he knows how to make us truly happy in a way that we don't even know ourselves how to make ourselves happy. And so we ought to live then according to his life-giving commands. Psalm 119 says, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you give me life. And Genesis 2 verse 25 gives us a beautiful picture of what that kind of life looks like. We hear the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's the most beautiful verse in the Bible. I mean, can you imagine this morning standing physically, emotionally, psychologically, relationally, naked, laid completely bare for all the world to see and experiencing no guilt, no shame, no need to hide, being utterly exposed, known to your very core, the deepest part of your soul, the parts you formerly tried to hide from everyone and yet feeling unconditionally loved and accepted exactly the way you are. I mean, isn't that the deepest longing of your heart, of all of our hearts? So what went wrong? They experienced it in the garden. What went wrong? Question number four. Short answer is, we did. We are what's wrong with the world. We read in chapter 3, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Hiding, guilt, shame, for the first time ever show up in the world. Why? Well, because they wanted to be like God. That was Satan's temptation. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And just like all of Satan's lies, Jesus calls him the father of lies, the deceiver of the whole world. Satan is clever enough to couch his lies in a half-truth. It is true that they do now know good and evil. Their eyes are open, but they are not like God. God is good. God is life-giver. But Adam and Eve, by virtue of their disobedience, have now invited death into the world. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now you might hear that word sin and think murder or, or jump to adultery, the really bad ones. But the Bible doesn't really distinguish things like that. The Bible's bar is actually much lower. The word for sin, the Greek word hamartia, means missing the mark. Remember, we were all created to reflect God's glory, but the Bible clearly says that we have all sinned and failed to reflect and give God the glory that he deserves. We've, we've all failed to actually bring God the unequaled, undivided, unadulterated glory that we owe him. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so if we point our fingers at Adam and Eve, we miss the point, friends. I am Adam. You are Eve. Put us in the same situation and we will fall just as far short as they did. We do it every day, don't we? I mean, we are no different than them. In our pride, we too want to become gods unto ourselves. We too want to usurp God's throne and his position of preeminence. Our fastest growing worldviews are the proof. Secular humanism says there is no God. You are God. And that's really what moralistic therapeutic deism boils down to as well. God exists for me to make me happy in this life and then to give me some vague sense of hope and comfort for the afterlife. And if you closely examine every other worldview out there, what you're going to find is that they're all proposing the same basic solution to the world's problems of sin and suffering and evil. Judaism's mitzvahs, Islam's five pillars, Hinduism's karma, their common proposed cure is just different packaging of the same solution. Just try harder. Just do better. And Christianity alone has the audacity to ask the tough but all-important question how good 
is good enough. Like, if you imagine God placing all of your deeds from your entire life on his cosmic scale, the balance, the good on this side and the bad over here, what kind of balance do you think you would need to impress God? How much of your good would be sufficient to sway the preeminent, almighty, perfect, holy, righteous creator of the universe to make him impressed with you? Christianity alone dares to warn us, when you get to the gates of heaven and God asks you, why should I let you in? Whatever you do, don't appeal to your own track record, to your own best attempts at being good enough, whatever that means. Because Christianity alone confronts us with the harsh reality that we cannot be the solution to the world's problem because we are the problem. That's like using the open jar of marinara sauce to try and get the stain out that you just made. It makes no sense. We're the problem, not the solution. According to the Bible, the problem with the world isn't the coronavirus. It isn't even the suffering that this virus is causing. All of that is merely symptomatic of the real problem, the deeper problem, the root problem. Us. Our sin. Our sin causes death. Yes, physical death. But the virus of sin is far more dangerous than the coronavirus. Jesus said, don't be afraid of being killed physically, that's going to happen eventually anyways. 100% of people who are born will die. It makes no sense to live your life trying to avoid the inevitable, Jesus says. Instead, focus on where you're headed. You should be concerned about dying spiritually, he says, eternally. That's the death that Adam and Eve suffered. Remember, God had warned them Chapter 2, verse 17, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. But Satan promised, no, you won't. Another half-truth. They take a bite, and they didn't die physically, immediately. But their spirits, their uniquely designed spirits, designed for relationship with God, perfect union with God, have now been severed, cut off from him. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God has nothing to do with sin. And so when God shows up in verse 8 for his daily stroll through the garden in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve, can you imagine that picture? How nice that would have been. But on this day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, because as Adam explains to God, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Sin brings death, death of relationship. Not just our relationship with God. After hiding from God, what's the very next thing Adam and Eve do in verses 12 and 13? They blame one another. The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's our fault. 
The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Everybody, finger pointing, blame shifting, and notice how their sin destroys all three of God's life-giving callings on their lives. Number one, they were originally called to produce life, to be fruitful and multiply, but now Eve is cursed to do that in pain. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And they were called to promote life, number two, to have dominion and care for the earth. But now Adam is cursed to do that in toil and in hardship. And to Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And number three, they were called to preserve life, to trust God and live. But now they are cursed to die, not only spiritually, but physically too, we hear in verse 19. You will return to the ground now, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return, God says. Now, at this point in the sermon, you are probably thinking, this is the worst Easter sermon I've ever heard in my life. Here you guys were selling me good news and hope with everything going on in the world, but none of this sounds very good to me. Well, hang tight, because this sermon is titled The Call, the Curse, and the Cure for a Reason. And we are finally ready to answer question number five, the most important question possibly of all of the six. How does all of this get fixed? This is, this is like when your favorite band waits until the encore to play the, the song that everyone came to listen to. But, but I'm here to tell you, the whole album is good, okay? Uh, questions one through four, it is good that God is preeminent. That fills our whole universe with meaning. It is good that we've been created in his image for his glory. That fills our lives with meaning. It is good that he calls us to follow his life-giving good ways. And believe it or not, it's even good, number four, that you and I are the answer to the question of what's wrong with the world because it means that we don't have to bear the weight, the responsibility of trying to be the cure. We're the curse, not the cure. Praise God, he has provided another cure. And God's prescribed cure is prophesied right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Just nine verses after Eve's fateful bite of the fruit, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. Bible nerds call this the proto-euangelion, literally the first gospel. This is the first prophetic glimpse of God's great plan to rescue and redeem the whole world from the curse of sin. And here's how he's going to do it. God puts enmity, hostility, not only between Satan and Eve, but between their offspring Remember those religious leaders that I mentioned who didn't get along so well with Jesus, who hated him so much that they crucified him? Jesus called them children of their father, the devil, in John 8, 44. Meanwhile, do you want to guess whose descendant Jesus is? 
The Gospel of Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam and Eve. And so what we have here, friends, is thousands of years before Jesus even came to earth, a prophecy in chapter 3 of the Bible that this conflict between Satan and humanity, our war against evil and sin, will be waged generation after generation after generation until finally a singular offspring will come whose heel Satan will strike, but he in return will crush Satan's head. And friends, when Jesus took his final breath on the cross and uttered his last words, it is finished. What Satan heard was, I surrender Satan, you win. And for three days, it appeared as though the prophetic venom in Christ's heel really had inflicted a mortal wound. But then the third day came. And when Jesus' female followers came to the tomb to anoint his wounds, there were none to be found. Because not only was the snake bite gone, but so was his heel. So was his whole body. What they did find was an angel of God who asked them in a very matter-of-fact manner, why do you seek living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. The snake may have won the battle, but Jesus conquered death itself as living proof that he had won the war. Hebrews 2 Verses 14 and 15 proclaim, Through death he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And he delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Satan had rightful legal claim over our lives and over our eternal spiritual fates by virtue of our sin. We were slaves to sin, God says. Destined for death and hell, but Jesus ransomed us from the slavery of sin and the death we deserved by his death in our place on the cross and by his glorious resurrection from the dead. Colossians 2 declares, You who were dead in your trespasses, your sins, God made alive together with him, with Jesus, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. None of us had the kind of spiritual credit it would have taken to pay the debt that we owed God by virtue of our own sin. And yet, Jesus set it aside, nailing it to the cross. But he didn't just stop there. Because if the cross paid our debt, then the empty tomb was the receipt, proving that the check had cleared that Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How does the world get fixed? How does our sin, that is the root cause of all this suffering in the world, get fixed? It got fixed, past tense, 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked out of the grave. You say, wait a minute, there still seems to be plenty of sin all around the world to me. Christians don't even seem to be immune to it. That's true. When Jesus died, the death that we deserved on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin, canceled the record of debt, 
And when he rose from the grave, he gave us the power over sin. Romans 6, 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That means for those of us who have been raised to new life in Christ by virtue of our faith in him, we don't have to sin anymore. I mean, we still might, but we don't have to. Once we were enslaved, we didn't have a choice. Sin ruled the day. But Christians now no longer treat sin as an inevitability in our lives because Jesus has raised us to new life in him. Paul says, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. But even though we don't have to sin anymore, we still fail to walk in newness of life all the time. We still fall short of God's glory. And so we await the day when Jesus will return or he will call us home and when we will at last be free from the very presence of sin. Already freed us of the penalty of sin. He's progressively progressively freeing us of the power of sin as we're sanctified throughout this life. And one day he will free us from the very presence of sin. No more sin. Now, that is amazing news. I mean, whether you choose to believe it this morning or not, I hope you can at least appreciate how different Christianity is and how awesome the good news of Jesus is. Why we as Christians get so pumped up about Easter about celebrating his resurrection because of what it means for us. And that takes us to our last question. Still got one left to answer. Question number six. What happens when I die? So let's head back to Genesis chapter three for two quick closing observations. We are left here with two powerful, contrasting images at the end of Genesis 3. In verse 23, we hear, the Lord God sent them out from the garden, paradise lost. And friends, just like the Garden of Eden, heaven is a perfect place designed for perfect people. So if you want to know the Bible's answer to how good is good enough to get into heaven, Jesus makes it really clear in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you're perfect, you're welcomed into heaven. Otherwise, you're back to problem question number four. You've got a problem. But we've already prescribed Jesus as our, our cure, and so we get this powerful prefiguring of Christ's sacrificial death in our place right here in Genesis 3, verse 21. We hear the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. What's going on there? God is offering for the first time in history on behalf of Adam and Eve for their sake a sacrifice. God makes the first sacrifice in history and symbolically covers them in death. The death of this animal in their place. The biblical word for this is kafar, means atonement, to cover. See, it's not just that God can't have anything to do with sin. 
God's justice demands that he actually punish sin. For God to turn a blind eye to sin would be unjust. Sin demands death, and so God provides a sacrifice as the means of death, a payment, an atonement, a covering of the punishment for sin for Adam and Eve. So too today, friends, God has provided just such a sacrifice, just such an atonement, a covering for the punishment of your sins and of my sins. And what happens when we die depends on what you will be wearing when you stand before the judgment throne of God the Father. Listen, no one is going to stand before the Almighty God naked and unashamed. Naked and unashamed sailed years ago. But listen to how the prophet Isaiah prophetically praised God for his coming Messiah and anticipated him 700 years before Jesus was even born. He says, My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And so I ask you this morning, friends, what will you be wearing? What will you be wearing when you stand before God's throne in heaven on your day of judgment? Will you wear your own righteousness and hope that you are good enough that the scales balanced out? Or will you wear Christ's righteousness?